Hello, beloved survivors. My name is Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World. For me, what I would probably try to do was I would probably try to get go to uh, Dad's house and get my wooden katanas. Remember, I have those wooden oh, katanas. Oh, yeah. Something to protect yourself yeah. with. Yes. The other voice you're hearing is my 11-year-old kid, Finn. In our conversations about apocalypse survival, Finn and I keep returning to the question of skills. What skills do we have? And what skills do we need? And how do we get those skills? Of course, if the electricity stopped working, we would have to figure out a different way to get that water out of the ground. Like we would have to figure out a way to generate our own electricity to make the well work. Or there's the a well pump. Or we could just uh, use, the, uh, use the easiest way to purify water from the lake. What is the easiest way to do it? What you're supposed to do is like uh, use like a sock and uh, put like uh, banana peels and, and sand in it, and then like you drain the water through that. Once you that sounds done, disgusting. I'm I'm sorry, but that's what, what <laughs> that's the first step. And Shortly after How to Survive the End of the World was birthed into being as a podcast project. We were contacted by a brilliant duo named So and Pinar, who created a project in 2015 called Queer Nature, designed to answer exactly this question about skills and answer it in a way that tends to trauma, healing, depth, and stillness. We have wanted to interview Queer Nature since 2017 when we started the podcast. And we knew that a conversation with So and Pinar would be the cornerstone of this miniseries. I can't speak highly enough about the breadth of wisdom and spirit that was present in my conversation with them. We've actually decided to bring you two episodes featuring their knowledge. But before we get into the conversation, a bit about queer nature. Queer nature is an education and social sculpture project founded in 2015, that mentors community in place-based skills. Queer Nature is dreaming of a decolonial, queer ancestral futurism with an awareness of our post-industrial, globalized, and ecocidal context, emphasizing deep listening and relationship building with both living and non-living Earth systems. Queer Nature teaches workshops on handcrafts, survival skills, and they lead multi-day immersions, all with a recognition of the colonial and indigenous histories of land, and all are accessible to LGBTQ people, and specifically to queer, trans, black, and indigenous people of color. Their goal, to create resilient narratives of belonging for folks who have often been made to feel by systems of oppression that they biologically, socially, or culturally don't belong. Queer Nature is also more than an education project. It's an organism. It's a love organism made up of two incredible people, So and Pinar. Pinar is an indigenous, multi-species futurist, mentor, consultant, and a trans eco-philosopher. Their relationship with queerness, hybridity, neurodivergence, indigeneity, and belonging guides their work in developing queer eco-psychology with a somatic and depth approach through a decolonial lens. 
So is a white, queer, Greek-American who grew up in the northern hardwood forests of Alnabak territory. So is a nature-based educator, a wilderness EMT, and a writer. The soul of So's work is animated by studies of identity, place, notions of the sacred, and interspecies relationship within context of colonization, globalization, migration, and climate crisis. I'm so honored and thrilled to bring you part one of my conversation with Queer Nature. We met um, at a school in in Washington State, actually, which is where we are again now, um, currently in the Pacific Northwest. And we were both attending a school that kind of focused on teaching nature-based mentorship. So it it was focused on kind of how to think about and do pedagogy in ways that incorporate the more than human world. So um, more than learning so-called survival skills and earth-based skills, but also yeah, approaching this and like how do we how do we take these skills and um, and offer them to others and create spaces um, for for these skills and. So that was where we met, and um, we we met kind of serendipitously, actually, in in a, a parking lot where we actually opened our car doors into each other, our, our parked cars. And <laughs> it very, so yeah, it was very funny. And um, since Pinar always parks backwards because they always like to have a quick escape from any situation, and I very smart. exactly very practical, and I at the time parked like kind of nose in. So our, both our driver's side doors opened into each other and we, I couldn't get out of the car and Pinar couldn't get in. And then that gave us an opportunity to, to, for an extended hello, which for people who are socially awkward and introverted, at least for myself, that was like a really good kind of opportunity to just chat. And we found out that we were both um, involved in this, this school, um, at the time and that that was a connection. And then we just immediately started talking about our shared interests and oddly enough, our shared, not totally shared, but our similar path of coming to earth-based skills through a journey of working with sheep actually, and, and working um, as shepherds in different contexts. Um, And, and that was just also like, uh, there was a lot of synchronicity in the moment and there was like just there was a lot of yeah I, I like to think about it as like little glowing fireflies like everywhere and oh. us kind of realizing the synchronicity and being like we need to follow this trail like this glowing trail of of you know relationship and and um coincidence and so that was oh. when we first made our connection and that was yeah um, May about seven years ago uh, here on in the Pacific Northwest on Snoqualmie territory, which is a bit east of where we are now, and um, and then that's that's kind of the beginning of it. And we spent the next year um, kind of beginning our relationship and you know being involved in a lot of these conversations because we were both engaged in pretty intensive, immersive like learning. Pr- um, programs at the time, like educational programs as students, like not as, as, Mm. but as students. And so, yeah, there was just something about 
about that space of of learning and exploration and possibility and then also like of our falling in love that just was like this it was like this amazing vortex of of possibility and emergence and we and we just kind of got on that wave and we've never stopped riding it ever since i guess <laughs> so beautiful oh my god <laughs> and yeah i like to say that it was i mean love is such a intense and amazing word and i like to say that it was enchantment at first sight cuz i mean of course there there's there was love there that developed so quickly but we were definitely enchanted when we met and and I think that that we've really maintained a thread of that in the work of queer nature because we might get mm. to talk about this later. But in so many ways, even though on on the sort of appearance of it, we do teach a lot of like technical skills and survival skills and hands on skills that I think have a lot of you know um, similarity to to people who are in the prepping community and in the kind of more mainstream survival skills community. But really, when it comes down to it what keeps us coming back to these skills is enchantment and awe and joy and just like, um, yeah, just creating, creating relationship with, with mystery and with the unknown together in our community. Um, and so we, I think when we first came together and we're just in these, a lot of these questions and experiences together, there was kind of this like no brainer, like thing, like in the background that was like, of course we want to create, spaces for trans and queer people and trans and queer folks of color to like to learn and apprentice to these skills with us like we want to like invite everyone else in you know to the magic and right like why let this enchantment be just the two of us when it could be more (laughs) Yeah, yeah totally and like seeing seeing our relationship as as kind of a a seed of like a little culture that we want to create not not that we're like totally creating this in a vacuum. I don't want it to sound like that at all, but just like, yeah, that the notion of just welcoming people in and that hospitality, which is also really important to both of us it, because we both have roots in, um, in cultures that are for me, Greek and Pinar Turkish cultures are very, very um, into hospitality and everyone tries to outdo everyone else. And like, who can be the most welcoming? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so I think well I've said a lot, so I'll I'll leave it at that for now because I want to see if Pinar wants to pick up any threads there about the story of queer nature and why. And yeah, um, thanks for sharing that. I feel very uh, giddy about what you shared so far. Um, yeah, I feel like well, one of the things that feels really important to share is yeah, I mean queer nature is um, a love story, and one of our um, community members shared with us um recently that you know we shared recently like our story of how we met and they were like oh this is like an origin story and I'm like oh wow like it is mm-hmm. an origin story and how many origin stories are there out there that are like you know um connecting to each other as different ecologies like supporting each other um towards collective um liberation so I'm just just feeling grateful for that um Uh, the thing that our friend and our community members shared Um, but one thing that I wanted to share with like in terms of our ancestries is I I definitely feel like our ancestors like conspired for us to meet (laughs) it sounds like it I mean it definitely sounds like it it's really funny because we're both you know like we're both queer and we're both trans and 
Um, so I feel like there's definitely some ancestors who are probably like rolling in their graves and like others who are like joyfully celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're healing. I feel like healing lineage and lineages is really important. Um, which is one of the reasons why we, I like to talk, um, about, you know, um, survival skills also as like overlapping and different and like differentiated from ancestral skills. Like, so the skills mm. that our ancestors, um, <clears throat> yeah, the skills that our ancestors practiced and that have gotten us here, like just the reasons why we continue to survive. Um, so yeah, I feel like th- that is such, such an important piece, the ancestral tie and also how I feel like, um, you know, also the, the hardship of our ancestral connections too. Cause, um, you know, we, I, I feel like our ancestors like stealthed or evaded from each other or like pursued each other and potentially not so like great ways in terms of like the Greeks and the Turks and um oh yeah interesting and also like my indigenous ancestry which is Quechua with like you know so's um settler ancestry and so I feel like that there's a lot of threads there um in terms of like ancestral um healing and remediation and like what does that look like and um like through like dreamt on the land and with the land and so I think those are a lot of the core prayers that we're like holding together with our community members um like on a broader like um on a broader level beyond just us obviously but like as like um a collective of peoples so yeah I think that that's a bit of queer nature and um there's so much more to share about that um and I just feel like emphasizing what's so shared which is like accessibility um for like trans and queer um and qti bipocs for to learn these skills and like reclaim these skills mm-hmm. is so important mm-hmm. um because you know as someone who's been in spaces um learning these skills that were inadvertently harmful you know like the, you know and uh, there was a lot of erasure like i feel like it's important to you know create spaces that center um yeah just centered like the survival skills that we already have um from living in like through systemic oppression and like celebrating our um thrival and survival um in these times so yeah yes oh my god um also i think i've never heard the uh phrase ancestral remediation before and i really hope that that's like a book that you're going to mm. publish um <laughs> that's incredible mm. um well, yeah. And so actually getting right into, I feel like what you, the last thing you shared is a really good segue into the, the next question I had for you, which is um, um, really about the relationship of queerness to the work that you all do. So, mm-hmm. you know, the skill shares and workshops that you all offer and have offered vary quite a lot from, you know, scouting and camouflage to bird languages to wildlife tracking, fire making, self-defense, um, I mean, it's really quite a, a incredible compendium of work that you all have been creating um, and leading and it sounds like co-guiding with the people who are on this journey with you. I'm wondering if you can kind of, from a hawk's eye view, help us understand what is the through line that connects all of these skills and why they would all be taught as a part of a program called Queer Nature and how how do these skills specifically relate to queerness and to indigeneity? Hmm. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I, I think it could make sense to just say a little bit about the context, which Pinar already got into a little bit of like how we had both had experiences with, I guess, so-called survival skills in context, like at, at schools that teach survival skills or classes that had been, um, that had really forced us both, I think, to compartmentalize aspects of ourselves. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I, I can't say that I've had any, like, it's like really harmful experiences at, at these, in these contexts, but there's, there's definitely like a low grade of, you know, racism, sexism, misogyny. And a lot of it comes out in the sort of, um, the sort of notion or the narrative or the story of like, of conquering nature, like needing to conquer nature, um, needing to battle your environment. Like, and I know this is something that you've probably thought a lot about too, but just that, yeah, that story that nature is trying to kill us and that we have to sort of um, become this Swiss army knife person who's, you know, that's kind of the commando archetype, which has been a huge thing in popular consciousness in the last kind of 10, 20 years. And that, that we sort of have to be that. And I think for queer people, and folks of other marginalized identities, it can be really empowering to think of the non-human world as a partner or as a comrade and not necessarily, not as an enemy, you know? And the thing is, that's not to say that there's not threat in, in the non-human world and in the so-called wilderness. Like we don't want to minimize the threat at all, but the threats are not derived from from humans, from from bigotry, from sexism, from racism. I mean, that's a generalization, but we can we can make that generalization fairly comfortably. And so I think it can be actually really relieving and refreshing to sort of operate in this space, um, the spaces that we create in queer nature where the threats and risks that we face don't necessarily have that same social and emotional weight to them. And we can, you know, the spaces that we create where we're working with natural materials and learning hands-on skills, this is kind of like a lab where we can really like, like explore and stretch capacities of our nervous systems and that's that's something that we can get into in a later question like the whole um like how we actually go about um preparing people for for stuff um but but that's kind of one entry point um yeah and so let me just see if there's anything else i want to say about that um and i think also then there's another kind of body of of human endeavors that is in the realm of outdoor education and out and I think outdoor education in this mainstream paradigm has been very definitely very ableist and very colonial like it's kind of mm. nature is our gym and we're we're chasing the stoke basically and we approach it in this kind of addictive way where everything has to be really extreme and epic and <laughs> and, and, and not that that's always bad like I I love like stuff that could be seen as epic or, you know, grandiose in a way. And but I think from an, in, from a standpoint of kind of cosmology or like how we see the world in these situations in kind of traditional outdoor education, we're approaching the outdoors kind of as if we're the protagonist and the whole story is about us. Like it's about what we do and mm. we're, we're kind of the authors. And then the outdoors is basically a blank page. Um, and I think that in, very colonial, very settler exactly. narrative. Yeah. yeah. And I think at Queer Nature, we want to approach it in a way where the, the protagonist, 
you know, is not us. The protagonist might be like a fox whose tracks we're studying or who, or a slug who's feeding on some lichen on a, on a tree or something. And, and, and that involves changing how, what we, how we see information and what we see as information. Um, Mm. And, and that can be really, um, really important. Like, I think for like, you know, seeing, seeing things as information outside the human world, like grass laying down a certain way or, or, you know, a surface being shiny or bark being removed from a tree. These are ways that we can like build stories and, and then we can sort of, it, there's something really nourishing about that because we can sort of realize that we have this amazing ability to witness and to pay attention and to track patterns. And it's something that you don't need a lot of mobility or strength or gear to do. You don't need a lot of direction from sort of a authority to do this. Like it's very, I think that what I'm getting at here is like these skills are, can be on one level, extremely accessible. And I think that that can take out a lot of the intimidation factor um, that comes with mainstream survival skills and mainstream outdoor education. And then that in turn, I feel like creates a more emotionally accessible space for, for pretty much anyone who's felt left out of dominant narratives about who's an outdoors person, who, who gets to belong, who gets to survive. Um, Mm. And I, so yeah, and I'd love Kanar for you to take, take over if you, would like to yeah there's just so much that you shared there I mean even the concept of wilderness is such a colonial concept of you know um of the erasure of indigenous peoples of like the forced removal and um genocide of um indigenous peoples of first nations folks and so I feel like yeah I I hear I, I feel like that um even if you like google or research stealth or I don't know scout or survival skills what are the images that you see? Who are the images that you see? Who are the bodies who survive um, or who are portrayed that they have survived? Um, and so I feel like to me in terms of like how the through line of these skills like relates to indigeneity is like really reclaiming that, you know, my ancestors and many of our ancestors have endured and have survived and that we are like the living, breathing survival skills and like breathing joy and prayer of our ancestors Mm. um and you know and that we don't have to continue that like colonial myth of like conquering you know but rather within like i would say one of the things that one of the through lines that we have in queer nature is really centering kinship um with the more than human world and you know, as so was sharing that interspecies solidarity and like co-conspiring with the natural world um, mm-hmm. for like co-liberation. Because um, so often I feel like our um, conversations around co-liberation can remain very human-centered, which is really necessary in some ways, but we also are missing so much like wisdom from the more than human world. And many, like there are so many co-conspirers out there that are like that are wanting to tend to kinship um, if treated with respect mm-hmm. and, you know, treated with like, um, yeah, are if we're willing to be accountable to them too. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's something that's so, um, that's one of the things that I feel like is really important to us um, is like, you know, how, I feel like a lot of what we want to teach to or tend to, um, you know, in co-creating an environment is, how to tend to a secure relationship to place um, mm. 
and like from a decolonial lens, you know, while centering indigenous sovereignty. And, you know, I feel like that can be a very, um, yeah, it can be dangerous in just the right way to, to, to come uh, from that place to like center relationship and to, yeah, to really like tend to secure relationship to the best of our ability. Um, and in a lot of ways, we talk about what we teach as skills of belonging to. And um, yeah. that can be really, you know, obviously, like, it, it can be, it sounds different coming from someone who's like indigenous versus someone who has different social locations. Mm-hmm. But still, I feel like, you can still like protect a place and protect the sacred and center indigenous voices, um, first nations voices. And, 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 you know, and I feel like kinship is just such an important integral aspect of that to like really be accountable to place. So yeah, I, don't, I feel like there's a lot yeah. that I could. I mean, just, just to like add a tiny bit onto what Panar was saying. Cause I, I think that that, that point is so, crucial about like that these skills are about building relationships with other than humans and also forming healthy attachments at least to the best of our ability like expanding sort of attachment theory to beyond the human um Mm. which and part of help forming healthy attachments includes seeing these beings as sovereign persons with with their own agency whether they're whether they're a piece of wood living wood or a um, you know a creature who's making tracks or trails who we're following um just beginning to see to just experience and get dirt time like on a very sensuous level of like the level of senses and perception um Mm. affect and just getting that time building those relationships um is is so important and then there's this notion which they those beings do kind of they become sort of our our comrades are like, I don't like the term battle buddies, but like if there could be like a more like <laughs> another version of that, like sort of comrades, I guess. But yeah. And, um, and I think belonging, it's, it's something I've thought a lot about as a white person of settler descent is like, how can, how can belonging be unsettling? Because I think that it's really easy right now to, to run with that keyword or buzzword as a white person and just be like, Oh, like, you know, I asked the land for permission and they said that I could be here. And so I belong here. And that's not what we're talking about with belonging. Mm. I think that the skills of belonging, it's more nuanced than that. Because, for example, I think if you start to really pay attention to the patterns and relationships of the beings around you in the ecosystems around you. And the more you work with natural materials and observe like what the birds are doing and where the animal, where the trails are going and who's eating what, to me, I gain a greater, so much of a greater sense of respect for the land and for a deep story in which I'm not the protagonist. And those, that's actually what makes me more careful when I, when I go, you know, and I'm a guest on, on land. And I, and I say, I I step back and I'm like, oh, wow. Like I, yeah, I might not be welcome here. And, and I know that on the human level, I'm not always welcome places. And, and, but then what, what these skills um, of sort of ecological awareness help me deepen into is there really is a, there is a real sense in which sometimes we just don't belong. We don't, we aren't welcome in a place and it doesn't necessarily mean we don't belong on this earth, but it means that there's just a sort of call for, for that constant awareness and attention and um, paying attention to our impact, which is what so many 
of our skills, especially when we're getting into talking about stealth craft, like stealth skills and um, how to move quietly, how to sort of blend in with your environment. A lot of it is about playing with the ratio between our impact and our awareness, which I think is as, you know, and I can just say as like a person, a white person who was raised with class privilege and educational privilege, that's definitely a lesson that I'm still learning. (laughs) And it's, you know, like, so there's that. And and then on the mystical side, I think that these skills for me, and I and I know that you studied theology too, which I'm really excited about, but um, hey. I know, <laughs> I, I know, it's, it's got to bring it in because it's it's just like, you know, the queen of the sky or whatever. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, they there's a way in which these skills for me are also really about forming a secure relationship with with mystery and with the unknown. And you could call that the divine or the sacred or or. there's many names for that. Um, And they're not about erasing the unknown. They're about being in a place where we can meet the unknown as fully resourced as we can be in that moment, which could be varying depending on who who we are and our capacities. Um, And I think that in sort of the mainstream prepper movement, there's, there's toxic forms of these endeavors where it's really about oppressing the unknown and mystery and and censoring it. And you see a lot of that in our current government. And there's just like, there, we want we want total control and and we don't in our in our work we don't want total control we want like a fine balance between we we want that secure relationship with mystery we want mystery to be our friend because especially as you know people with different intersecting identities and different marginalized identities in these times you know mystery is never going to go away for us we might as well be friends yeah, with yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like I think on one level, we, we do teach these skills in order to be prepared. And we, and I definitely, we're definitely okay with being seen in the context of that movement, but then there's kind of a a not so hidden agenda where like something just magical happens when we get together in affinity spaces with other queer people. And especially when we work with our hands and there's like, there's kind of a transformation that happens on this level of like, feeling and senses and perception that I think, I think some people would call this the realm of somatics. Um, Right. right. And then this is just a place where, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. I don't, I'm not super steeped in trauma studies, but I think that there's a way where it just rewires our nervous systems to be in like, to be in the non-human world in a multi-textured environment, orienting to different stimuli that are not actually threatening. Like in that. Yeah, totally. And that kind of reminds me of like EMDR, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is actually, which actually kind of came out of Nature Connection. We'll be back with Queer Nature in a minute, but first, a bit of listener audio. This is an anonymous listener living in Malaysia. During this lockdown, I've been falling in love and starting a new relationship which feels almost impossible given the conditions, but here we are. Um, We haven't seen each other in person in months. And so one thing we do to um, build intimacy is we send each other morning art. So every morning we exchange a poem, a piece of art, a video, a song, a story that helps us to stay connected and hold each other and feel held. Thank you so much for sharing your voice. Listeners, it's not too late for the rest of you to send us something. 
What are your strategies for intimacy and connection to other humans during this time of social distancing? Let us know by recording audio into your voice memo app or your voice recorder app on your phone and then emailing it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Queer Nature. I remember experiencing a real shift around living in the woods over the course of the seven years that I lived there. And for me, like the major shift point happened when I was in an experience of really deep grief and felt like a call to be in the woods and felt like it was the only place where I really could feel comfortable and at ease. Um, and I remember noticing that like I had had this fundamental shift through my grief from like being afraid of the quote unquote outdoors, being afraid of the woods as a place where I might be threatened, which was very person first, right? <laughs> like person first narrative, like me against the, me against the woods, <laughs> um, this place that I was like choosing to live into a, like, I am just one of many beings that are here. Mm. and. And actually, I, you know, grief, grief helps us, I think, acquire that sense anyway of like, oh, I'm literally just one of many beings that are here and that will live and die. Mm -hmm. And like, <laughs> that's, that gave me a sort of sense of like safety inside mm -hmm. of a space that otherwise I had only been relating to through like fear and threat. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that in response to what you shared as like a yes, a resounding like full body yes to, um, to what you're teaching mm. um and it and it feels like um really related to this question i wanted to ask you about how you teach this like how you actually teach this to people mm. um you know as i was looking at your work um i was really curious about this the, the focus on like intuition and awareness um, and the phrase, the phrases that you all were using in describing your work of ecological awareness and situational awareness. Hmm. And as we were thinking about, um, this series, especially rethinking about this mini series of apocalypse survival skill episodes in the midst of this pandemic moment, um, I felt a strong awareness that like one of the fears a lot of people are carrying right now is about um, not knowing what to do or how to make decisions or how to take care of themselves and others in a disaster situation, right? Mm -hmm. That like people are afraid that they won't have um, instincts that come online that help mm -hmm. them survive. And in fact, I think that as the pandemic is unfolding, I think we're witnessing a lot of people feeling a sense of being frozen and kind of sinking into a sense of depression and powerlessness, even as other people find their agency. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, people respond to crisis in all kinds of different ways, depending yeah. on like whatever their like existing, you know, um, conditioned um, patterns are, right? But I'm all thinking about all of that. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you teach situational awareness, how you teach people to experience intuitively the ecology around them, especially given like a U.S. context where we're so disconnected from, so many of us are so disconnected from the natural world. Um, yeah. And then if you could talk also about like how that relates to like the overall resilience of our ecology. 
Mm. Yeah, I thank you. I love that you are asking this because I, I think it gives us an opportunity to dive a bit into our curriculum, which we haven't done a ton in like interviews or um, or even on social media. So thank you for, for that question. And um, this is so answering again. I just wanted to say too that I wanted to name that I right now often answer first. And that's partially because that's the strategy. That's the so-called survival strategy that Pinar and I have worked out for um, interviews because I, my neurotype, I tend to be uh, very information focused and sort of um, able to articulate like things quickly. And Pinar's like tends to be more of the percolating, like um, kind of slow, like wisdom seeping out toward the end. So Sounds like a perfect balance. Totally. Yeah. So I just wanted to name that because I also feel like I, um, I also just feel sensitive to that with my um, different like positions of power and privilege that I occupy as well. So I just wanted to name that, but, um, but yeah, thank you for the question. And I think that the way I would approach it, cause there's this, this could go in so many places like this answer. So I think one way that I'll start is by saying that a big part of what we're teaching people, especially in the curriculums that are focused on survival skills and like stealth and evasion, are um, we're we're after offering suggestions and invitations um, of how to think about survival and sort of how to um, how to think about like how to think about our own thinking. And so I think in a big way, like metacognition, which is more commonly known as mindfulness, is pretty much the most important survival skill and tool. And a lot of survival skills instructors will tell you that. But unfortunately, especially in the mainstream um, depictions of survival that you see on TV, like Naked and Afraid and stuff, you hear a lot about how mindset is really important and attitude, but you don't hear a lot about what that actually is. Especially, And I think that that can um, create a lot of inaccessibility and barriers for people who've um, who've experienced various sorts of trauma, who've been abused, people who are marginalized and experience racism um, or other forms of systemic oppression. Because I think that there's there can be this way in which um, it can be a form of gaslighting for people to be like, well, you just have to have a positive attitude, and that's mm-hmm. that's the number one survival skill. Come on, like it's easy, and it's like, well. It's, it's not actually so easy because how are the ways in which attitude is socially constructed, um, you know, how like and, you know, people in the way where people can be gaslit for like not having the right attitude, you know, yep. um, mm-hmm. and what does a survival mindset look like for people of different backgrounds, races, genders, ability levels? What does the survival mindset look like for other species, for deer, you know, for um, for a fox, for a you know, a bird, you know? And so I think that we, we always like to begin with so-called mindset. And it's a weird word because actually when it comes down to it, it's really about having fluidity and adaptability on, on. Yeah. So it's like, it's not really a mindset. It's like a mind fluid or something or like a wiggly mind. I don't even know, but like <laughs> on one hand, there's that adaptability. And then on the other hand, there really are for me like a series of checklists that I have to go through. And this is another fit. I love that 
there's an opportunity for me to bring in mental health too, or it's a strange phrase, but for me to bring in mental health, because one of the reasons I started studying survival skills and got really attached to it is that I really struggle with anxiety and I am on the autism spectrum. And so I struggle for me, what that means is I struggle with executive dysfunction and Mm. What that is, is I have extremely hard time um, initiating tasks and I have an extremely hard time switching tasks and I get hyper-focused. Um, and that can include getting hyper-focused on my special interest, um, like for mm. survival skills, but it can also include me getting hyper-focused on just dissociating and just kind of being in more of a shutdown. Um, and so for me, like the reason I love a lot of this kind of emergency survival stuff like what to do and how and like how to you know compose yourself when things are really urgent and when your nervous system is freaking out is because I wasn't good at that and I'm and and a lot of the time I'm still not honestly but that's what gave me a lot of passion and interest to really figure out like how how do people in really high risk jobs and in urgent situations, like how do they, how do they get through that? You know? And, Mm. um, a big part of it is like, you know, and, and we can go into this more too, if it's, if it's, if there's time, but a big part of it is like in the stealth craft workshop that we teach, which is a four day class on basically stealth evasion, camouflage skills of that nature. So it's kind of like skills that are teaching you how to engage in survival skills while also engaging in evasion and evading something that's a threat. And the first day of the class, we pretty much just talk about nervous system awareness and and regulation. Um, And we we use a a therapeutic tool that some folks um, who are familiar with psychotherapy might be, might've heard of, and it's called the window of tolerance. Uh, I don't know. Favorite thing in the world. So you're familiar with that? Mm-hmm. And but, we and actually, you know what? We can post an image of it as a part of the show notes. But yeah, but please continue. Yeah, and so the window of tolerance and is basically um, a therapeutic tool or a framework for how to basically recognize and chart how your nervous system is is reacting to perceived stress. Um, and there's sort of different some different sectors. The first the top sector is the realm of hyper arousal, which is basically like sympathetic nervous system activation. So this is like your adrenaline rush, your like elevated heart rate, your elevated respiratory rate, um, inability to think and plan, which is a, which was a big um, revelation for me that I was like, wow, like your your whole prefrontal cortex literally is not getting as much blood flow when you're like in that state, and so you can't. Um, it's really hard to to actually think and think creatively in some ways, and it's and you often are acting more impulsively, which is not necessarily bad. But what what you're doing when you're often in a state of hyper arousal or sympathetic nervous system activation is you your brain can take these things that are basically cognitive shortcuts, and in in the field of outdoor leadership. Um, these are called, there's a certain term for these, and these are called heuristics or heuristic traps and Mm. heuristic traps were kind of named in the early two thousands by a guy who studied, who did a really exhaustive survey of like over 700, um, mountaineering accidents. A lot of them were avalanches and 
he he basically wanted to figure out why people who were often highly skilled and highly trained were getting into were basically dying in what were preventable accidents and he did, it, it's like a whole thing um I'm actually forgetting his name right now but I could probably email it to you later but he uh, he basically devised these several sort of fallacies or like mental shortcuts that people will often take that can actually lead us to um, exposing ourselves to extreme risk. And so can you give an example? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the best, one of the like, not best, I guess, but wrong word, but one of the most common examples (laughs) of the heuristic trap is familiarity. And so familiarity is a a person thinks something is safe because they've done it before. And this is actually one of the biggest, um, causes of like of mountaineering accidents where people are out there and they're really trained they're medically trained they're trained in risk management um but because they and they're also like very seasoned outdoors people who like do this all the time whatever they're doing they do it all the time and that actually creates can create a risk a huge risk when you do when you do something all the time and you're extremely familiar to it you're not going to be as attentive to when things have changed and so mm. That gets back to sort of one of the, and this is actually what I intended to say at first in answer to this question, but awareness, a huge aspect of awareness is noticing change. That's like, and this gets back to like the stuff that you were bringing in about, um, you know, being in insecure attachments or being in trauma, traumatized spaces where we, we sometimes can lose that ability. And so awareness is a lot about noticing change and it's a lot about tracking patterns and relationships between things in, in real time in like live, I guess. And so heuristic traps can happen when, yeah, when we're kind of our brain, our brain and our bodies are super jacked up on adrenaline. And then our brain is just wants to take these shortcuts. And another example of a, of a shortcut is, um, a shortcut with the intention of like resolving like right. the idea is that our brain is taking the shortcut thinking this will be the quickest way to get out of the situation that's causing yeah. the like flow of stress and adrenaline, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so another example uh, is okay. is like when a person doesn't speak up or take action because they're assuming someone else will do it. Like you're in a group and, you know, this has more benign versions. Like you're in a group and someone's like, oh, yeah, well, someone, you know, like go do this and like no one volunteers because everyone thinks someone else will do it. Well, think about what the the ramifications that could have in sort of an urgent or emergent or high threat situation. Um, and then that's mm. another sort of heuristic. And then there's also another one is called commitment or this is commonly known as the sunk cost fallacy, which is where someone has invested so much money or effort or time into a project that they're unwilling to abandon it. And in uh, totally. And like, I do that a lot, like in urgent and emergent situations, we, people often get fixated and they get tunnel vision, which is another symptom of, um, extreme hyper arousal, actually extreme sympathetic nervous system arousal is we literally get tunnel vision and we get fixated on something. And so I think, and so that's sort of to kind of pull back from those details for a minute. I think that the, the benefit of teaching and engaging with people about the window of tolerance and especially with hyper arousal, because that's where a lot of people tend to go. And especially in that's how a lot of leaders and toxic masculinity is represented in our society. Like a lot of people um, will 
in response to stress go into a hyper aroused state as opposed to a hypo aroused state, which hypo arousal is the other side of the window of tolerance. And that is a state of dissociation. Um, like shut down. Exactly. Right? Shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and basically we're trying to find ways to like track what we do in response to stress as individuals. And then we're also trying to um, kind of pool and brainstorm ways to interrupt these these states. Not that they can always be completely interrupted, and they often are very important states, and they off, they have a purpose. But I think that to be aware of them or to engage that metacognition, like the awareness of how we're thinking and feeling, um, is so important because in in survival situations, the one of the most important things you can do is just pause and and just just stop, like stop everything you're doing. And, um, and that can give you time to engage other cognitive tools, different checklists that you might have, different acronyms that you might have for procedures of how to do things. Um, and so the pausing is, is extremely important. And that's why a lot of sort of survival acronyms that you'll see used, the, the first step is always like, just, just stop and observe and, <laughs> you know, um, so that's a little bit about that. and. There's a lot more we could say too about the window, like the middle pe- portion. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Penar. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, one thing I wanted to share is one of the reasons why I got into this work um, of so-called survival skills and just ancestral skills and um yeah, just like having ways of connecting to the more than human world is um, I am a psychiatric survivor. So that means um, I'm essentially was put through the a lot of institutional or institutions because I was seen as someone um, who I don't know, was mentally, I guess, mentally unstable or different um, neurodivergent, like people didn't know how to like exactly deal with me with with this within the school system and within mm. um and that's something that I um uh, is a huge part of who I am and one of the reasons why we um bring in mental health and like resilience really at the core and also having things that are trauma-informed um mm. but when I started um when I started um doing engaging in survival skills um one of the things that I started to like really um, sit with was um, essentially just, especially when I was um, really working on my skills of awareness, I was like, okay, like, why does this feel so familiar? Like in my body, like why, why does like evasion tact, like just like um, stealth, like being camouflaged. um, Why does that feel like almost painfully like familiar in my body? And, um, you know, and I started to realize, you know, there were like intergenerational aspects to it. Yes. But then there were also this life of like living within systemic oppression and surviving systemic oppression where, you know, I had to um, essentially like practice stealth by like knowing how to code switch um, or, you know, in my body and verbally, um, as well as like you know, needing to know where the nearest, you know, cop was, um, at any given point when I was a teenager, um, where they were placed in the room, um, you know, essentially knowing how to evade any like binary bathroom situations, you know, 
and like learning also how to, um, you know, especially being in institutions where I was forcibly institutionalized for being um, neurodivergent against my will as a teen, like learning how to like be stealthy and like mask myself and essentially pretend to be neurotypical so I could get out. <laughs> and so I wow. like ways of stealth that felt so familiar in my body. And so when I started practicing them, you know, I had all these memories come up and at the time, no one really in that circumstance, in the, in that learning environment, didn't acknowledge that. Cause the, uh, I just don't know. They didn't, maybe they didn't have the awareness of that. And um, I started really sitting with this question about eight years ago of like, what is the difference between like, or sorry, intuition and like trauma response? Like, is there a difference? Is there like a nuance? Because sometimes I felt very like in my body, I was like, okay, is this a dangerous situation? Or is this my intuition? Mm. Or is it, you know, like, what am I reading? Can I like, can I filter out, you know, um, essentially like what is what is actually a stressful situation or a stressful like a, a potential threat and what isn't what is like a memory that's being triggered um where there isn't actually like threat in real life um in this moment um but something that i need to heal and tend to um wow. and yeah and i feel like as i started working with stealth craft more like those practices and gaining you know expanding my awarenesses I started to realize that what was really healing in the moment was that like stealth and evasion being like a choice and like having the agency as a survivor, mm. like to be like, Oh, now I'm going to choose to be stealthy. Like now I'm going to choose to evade. Now I'm going to choose to sink into the landscape and like actually completely blend in to this place. Um, and that it can actually be like a practice of, belonging and knowing place so intimately that I know how to do that and like blend in um wow and that that ended up becoming a, a huge like healing force um and it, it gave me you know the capacity like kind of similar to what you were sharing autumn like I felt like a lot of the grief that I was holding in my body with like trauma intergenerationally you know ecological grief I only felt like the land was able to hold it and so I feel like once I was out on the land I've and like spending as much time as I could um, developing my awarenesses, that's where I feel like I was really able to track my window of tolerance and be like, okay, this is when I'm in hyper arousal and like potentially my intuition is a little bit more fuzzy here or, oh, it's really fuzzy when I'm in hypo, when I'm like shutting down and dissociated, it could be really fuzzy for me here. And it's all really different for different people. So I'm not trying to like blanket like that experience for people. Um, but that's just something that I feel like is really important to track is like, okay, like in when am I, um, when am I regulated? Um, and like, how do I come back into regulation? Like either like self-regulation or like within like a group of people, like human people or more than humans. So that's like, some people refer to that as co-regulation, so to regulate with each other. Um, mm. And one thing that I also really like to speak about is like ecological co-regulation and like um, regu like regulating with the more than human world as well as ancestral co-regulation because our ancestors are also 
incredible taproots of wisdom that are like in our bodies who have survived so much. <laughs> and yeah. wait, actually, could you just slow it down for a second? Because I, I, I want you to break down what you mean when you say regulation. Yeah. Um, that's kind of completing the, the, um, the, um, the window of tolerance, uh, like, module that you guys were describing earlier and then and then let's track back so that you can explain what you mean by co-regulation sure uh, which is for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that language yeah thank you for sharing that um yeah I feel like uh, for the way that I would describe regulation um is essentially like learning how to come back to the the window of tolerance which is um and again, you, I know you're going to share like the image of like how it's like kind of drawn out, but in between the hyper arousal and hypo arousal, in between there's the window of tolerance, which is essentially like the place in which you're able to like, um, you're able to take in information and like think and feel at the same time, which is like one of the biggest uh, markers of um of the window of tolerance. And for some people who are trauma survivors, uh, whether it's intergenerational or, you know, of this current life or both, um, the window of tolerance can become a bit like um, narrower. Um, And so you could um, like, I'll speak for myself, like I could become a little, I'm more easier to be triggered around certain things when my window of tolerance is narrower. So essentially regulation to me is like learning how to, um, find, like, go back to my baseline, or like how to get back to my sense of equanimity or equilibrium of like coming to my window of tolerance of like, okay, I'm coming back to my body right now, I can feel and I could also like think, like eventually come and think into um, like, create or thinking of an action. But more importantly, like I can feel right now, you know, in my body, like I can feel my, my legs, and I can feel my heartbeat, um, and like, you know, breathing at like a, whatever is like a regular pace for you. Um, and like being able to tap into empathy and compassion to, uh, for yourself as well as for others, I think is also a marker of being in a regulated state. And also curiosity, like the, the big thing about the window too, is like, uh, this is so speaking again too, is like to add in here is like the, when you're in the window of tolerance, you're not necessarily happy. Like that's, that's one way I, at least <laughs> yeah. in terms of like survival skills, like you could be in the, in the window of tolerance or in this zone of like optimal arousal so-called, and you could be like grumpy or uncomfortable. Like you're not necessarily like, like in the window of tolerance, like floating around, like, you know, like in this like happy state, <laughs> but um, it, basically where you're, you're still able to experience curiosity and like, you're able to engage in these critical survival tools, like, like pausing and uh, like orienting and making decisions. And those, those happen within the window. And then also things like, um, experiencing awe, you know, like that's, and that's actually a survival skill is like, there, um, is like your ability to even stop and experience like beauty. And actually this, this was written about in the, in this famous book called deep survival, which was written by, um, I think he was like a former Navy fighter pilot, but he became really interested in why 
um, in a lot of high profile um, remote disasters, a lot of the survivors were people with little to no training. And a lot oh, of it had to do with heuristics. A lot of it had to do with the fact that those, those people who were the leaders, they were um, people were listening to them when they shouldn't have been listening to them, or the people were thinking that they were more trained than they were, or people just people fell into these things. And then basically his book is kind of goes into a lot of that. If folks are interested, it's called Deep Survival. And um, one thing that he found what, what, that was a commonality among a lot of these sort of um, unlikely survivors, I guess you could call them, of different disasters, <laughs> is that a lot of them were able to like stop and be like, whoa, like this mountainside that my tiny plane just crashed on and like lots of people are hurt and I have to go get help, but like, it's also really beautiful. And this is like, it was sort of this ability to see the fierceness and the beauty in, in these places and landscapes and situations, um, which is not necessarily to dismiss the pain of them either, but just, I think that what it says for me is that awe and, um, and wonder is a marker of being in the window of tolerance. Um, And that, for me, that's been amazing. And and also, like, another thing that uh, Lawrence Gonzalez, the author, talks about, which is pretty well known in the search and rescue world, um, which I have a limited experience within, but is that actually one reason that children about to up till the age of eight are kind of disproportionately good at surviving being lost or being in kind of remote disasters. One reason that they're good at that is because of their imagination, because they are the people who are able to be like, oh yeah, this bush kind of looks like a house. And like this, you know, this bed of pine needles is really comfy. And I'm just going to like, like, they're really good at sheltering in place. Oh my gosh. They're like the experts. And that's actually why uh, a lot of the time against a lot of odds, those, uh, that age group, does survive at a higher rate than others in certain disasters. So like, yeah, all these things are ways to think about um, the window of tolerance and also like to bring in power and privilege too. Like who, who gets to be in the window of tolerance more? Who has a wider zone of optimal arousal in our society? And then who also, this gets back to why queer nature exists too. Like who is more able to access situations and scenarios where they can practice sort of stress inoculation or practice stretching that window in a safe environment, in a controlled and safe environment. And a lot of those people, you know, like our folks, like, you know, up until only a few years ago, you know, queer people were not allowed in the military and trans people still aren't. Not like I'm saying that's necessarily like the right choice for people to learn these skills, but it's just a way of pointing out that these, um, a lot of these tools just aren't available to to us and have mm. been. and so so that kind of comes back to like why it's so important to talk about metacognition um when we're teaching survival and to give um certain tools like one of our favorite tools to teach is called the OODA loop and I can just give this here cuz it's just a little thing that people can actually use and oh, yay. yeah <laughs> The OODA loop is a, basically it's like a cognitive checklist or loop of decision-making that people can use in urgent situations. I use it pretty much every day because of what I was talking about with how I struggle with executive dysfunction, but it was actually developed out of, it isn't, I think it is from the military and maybe more specifically fighter pilots because they 
have to be in these situations again and again where they're basically trying to like land like a giant bomb like without it exploding that's their plane basically like high so they those people really are in a a role in a profession where they need to develop ways of um, actually making decisions while in extreme hyper arousal. Because when you're at that point, you're at the point where, and this is very instructive for, for a lot of us too, I think with our different experiences, but there's a point at which um, hyper arousal or like extreme nervous system arousal is inevitable. And that's actually part of what we teach at Queer Nature is we teach that one of the ways to counterbalance the, these responses is to expect fear and expect the response. Like know that it's going to happen and know that like, even when we're, when we're teaching stuff at queer nature and we're doing like hide and seek games to teach people how to, how to like be stealthy, we say up front we're like, these are just, th- yeah, sure. These are just games, but you're also like, you're also going to get your heart rate might be elevated. Like you might feel afraid and that's okay. And and the more we can like get into that place of expecting that and kind of breathing through it, like we're just putting ourselves in a, in more of a position to really ride that through. Um, mm. And so one of the tools that we teach is this thing I was saying called the OODA loop and it, it's an acronym and it's O-O-D-A and it stands for observe, orient, decide, act. Mm. It Basically it's a, and it really breaks it down. Like some people might look at that and they're like, well, duh, of course, of course you do things in that order. But actually like for me, because I struggle with anxiety, um, when I am in a hyper aroused state, I often want to act first before any of the other things. And right, act- right, right. And like act is actually the last step in the acronym. The first thing you do is you observe. And what that looks like in a survival situation is you stop, you sit, you maybe sit down and you just observe your surroundings and you don't even try to name it. You're observing colors, patterns, textures, like conditions of things. You may, you're maybe thinking what those things might appear to be, but you're really just taking in sensory information. And then after you observe, you move into the orient step and the orient is that's when you're more like naming things that's when you're like okay what time of day is it what's the weather doing what clothes am i wearing what's my inventory um and then the next step is decide and that's when you basically think and plan and make a decision about what your next step is going to be um and then the next the final step is act and that is deliberate action And it's just, so all of that seems like it's really long and drawn out, but it can be scrunched down to a really small amount of time. It could be stretched to a large amount of time and it happens over and over, which is why it's a loop. Um, Ah, that's why it's called the loop. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Again, it's so helpful for me because even like it, it helps me like in relationship stuff, like even with conflict, like, you know, with, with just reminding you that act acting has to be last like and even if you you know this this goes to like if you're in an evasion situation and you need to move and you're under threat you only want to move if you have to because traveling is when you're the most vulnerable in a lot of situations and so you really what like it really kind of helps ingrain that into your head and sort of like this fractal level where it's like scale invariant and it like it just kind of goes all the way up and all the way down um another thing we really teach people to do is um you know talk to yourself use positive inquisitive self-talk like what is my 
priority right now? What is my plan? And that's, you can use this inside the OODA loop in the decide and orient phases. You can ask like, you know, what's my plan? What like kind of use, use self-talk as a way to um, regulate. And then another thing that is really great, which the OODA loop does do is it is to break things into small tasks that you do one at a time. And this is really great for people who struggle with executive functioning stuff like me, but basically like break your plan into really tiny tasks and just what's the next thing you have to do. Because sometimes in, in survival mindsets and in sort of urgent situations, we immediately go to like the huge picture, which when we're in a really hyper aroused state, like that sounds like that's the right thing to do, but like the way we go about it might not end up being, it might end up being dangerous and we might end up missing um, right, right, and like the the huge picture is like when you're in a hyper aroused state. I mean, my my experience of this too is that like one of those things that one of the things that happens is like your vision literally narrows. Like you can't actually take in as much information. So y- you might think you're going to the big picture, but you're literally not able to. Exactly. You're not even taking in all of the information that you would want to be able to take in. Right. Exactly, exactly. Because you don't have that actual capacity at that moment. And you have to sort of go back and build that capacity in these like little ways. And, um, and so when Panar spoke to regulation, like, yeah, regulation could be anything that, you, that you're doing to sort of bring yourself into that window. So it could be, you know, and when we teach classes, we have big brainstorming sessions about this, and people come up with the most amazing things. I mean, if People will always say like often breath work or, you know, but then people will often say like dancing and like telling jokes to myself, you know, and like, um, so there's really like the sky is the limit in terms of what, what helps get you into the window. And there's definitely tried and true things like, you know, like the, like breathing slowly, for example, but then there's also things that, that people might do that are kind of unique to them. Um, there's also you know, looking at the horizon scanning is really good. Um, is, and that's often something that we teach and that, that kind of gets into, um, some, some also trauma informed stuff as well. Um, well yeah. And I was going to say that like, one of the things that's so interesting about everything that you're describing to me is that there are like, there are skills that we have to build when we're healing from trauma that mirror, yes. <laughs> like almost exactly mirror the skills that you're describing that you have to build in order to navigate um, the kinds of survival scenarios that you're training people to navigate. And I think that that's one of the things that's just like Mm -hmm. blowing my mind so much about what you're sharing. Like that small detail you shared about how children up to the age of eight tend to do to fare much better in survival scenarios because of the fact that they still have the ability, the capacity to imagine and reimagine their conditions. Right. And like that, that is one of the things, right? Like when we're, when we are healing from trauma, one of the things that we're having to do is rebuild imagination and rebuild connection and like um, rebuild a sense of like knowing whether something is safe or not. Right. And yeah. that like, and I was even thinking there was something that you shared earlier. Um, I'm, I can't remember uh, if it was Pinar or So who shared this. So my apologies, but I mean, there's so much brilliance happening between the two of you right now. But um, just the the something that you said about how like 
these being in these intentionally putting yourself inside these scenarios to learn these skills can also be very triggering Mm -hmm. of trauma that you're carrying. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about this as like, as a sexual assault survivor, Mm -hmm. that one of the things that I've been navigating over the last year of my life is having really intense sensory flashbacks. Mm -hmm. Um, And that often almost always don't come with any um, like cognitive information. It's Mm. like fully sensory information. And what I'm realizing is that what I've realized in the last few months is that one of the reasons that those flashbacks are happening with like increased frequency is that I'm at a point in my life where I'm actually safe enough to have to experience the flashbacks Mm -hmm. and then work with them and heal with my body and it and so something that you said just like landed that with me so clearly that oh it makes so much sense Mm -hmm. that people would have like strong somatic potentially really triggering experiences while doing these survival scenarios or survival training in large part because of being in conditions where it's safe enough to have these experiences that's when that's when our stuff will come up. Right. Right. (laughs) And and then having, having tools like these, like the OODA loop that gives, that gives each individual a clear sense of, well, what, what to do as these inevitable experiences are flooding through our bodies is so intelligent and just like really breathtaking. Like what you're describing is so breathtaking. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. That, that's really thanks for sharing that. I and I feel like that's that gets back. Like I feel like you would totally like. I wish you could come to one of our classes because I, I want to. I'm like, how do I get there as soon as the pandemic is over? <laughs> it happen totally. We have to bookmark that for sure. But um, but yeah, there's just this aspect in which you're right, and I I feel like this is something like because we we do refer to like the way we teach survival skills as trauma informed, even though neither of us are clinicians or or therapists, but just, we're just intensely interested from a personal and just also a level of community care in this intersection. And then the way you are um, reflecting it right now is, is also so potent and it's creating all these connections for me too. Like, um, like it's almost like these survival situations. I mean, they're literally like where you're working with trauma in real time in some ways and like Mm -hmm. in this way, but also, you know, also it it could definitely be triggering too and bringing up. So it's layered in that way where it's kind of like this vortex of trauma potentially where there's like, (laughs) there's stuff happening in real time. And then there's also sort of holographic stuff happening that's nonlinear. And, and, um, and yeah. and, And one thing that I was thinking about when I was listening to you is like, especially about the point of rebuilding imagination is it's, it's such a microcosm for the journey that we're on, like as, as a a species, I think too, is like, we're, is like, we're going through despair. And on the other side of despair is like, is the possibility for re-enchantment and for the world to have meaning again and, and, you know, um, and, and hope really. And it, it reminds me, there's a quote I wrote down before this interview by Rebecca Solnit. And it, she says that hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen. And that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. And Ooh. so I love that. Yeah. 
down because of the OODA. I was thinking about talking about the OODA loop and I was like, wow, this is like tactical hope. Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. In our next episode, we will continue the conversation on tactical hope with So and Pinar. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash endoftheworldshow. There's no better time than now to support our podcast. The more our listeners give, the more of this critical content we can produce and get out. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts, if you're an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. <laughs>